Well, man, we're, uh, oh, it is time to start, so good. Uh, I plan to finish Philippians 4 today. Now, on the board, um, I'm trying to make connections that I think are really, really important for us. Um, and it's so much light in here, I think you can see it. I mean, I'm not complaining when I say that, but there is a lot of light, and I don't know um, if this is as clear uh, as it should be, but it's the best I can do. Uh, Let's just review and think about a couple of things, because I believe this is how the Apostle Paul would want us to make the connection. Um, The key word of chapter 4 of Philippians is the word peace, and I mean, we've talked about that now for a number of weeks, so that's not a surprise to you. But I'd like you to think of this connection of these three ideas, three thoughts, three concepts in this way. Peace with God, which is established by the cross. Does that make sense? Produces the peace of God, one of the fruit of the Spirit, that quality of life that the Apostle Paul has been discussing in Philippians 4, uh, actually 4 through 9, which then results in contentment. All of a sudden, I really, really want I know you guys are enjoying the summer weather. Oh, it's great. In January. It's <laughs> That's all right. So uh, these two are obviously related, this quality of life called the peace of God. But I think contentment is um, a broader idea than that, which is what I want to talk about and kind of flush it out. We started that last week, but it's a, it's a way to, as I think we always should try to do with God's Word, is make as many connections as we can, because these 66 books of the Bible are all integrated together, and the more you study them, and the more you see that. So, this connection, does that make sense? Is there anything you don't understand about that? <clears throat> well, given that, and assuming that it all makes sense to you, um, I want to pick up with verse 10, and although we already started talking about this and read a little bit of it last week, particularly uh, verse 13, I want you to get the whole thrust of what he's saying. So let me read 10 through 13. Uh, But I rejoiced in the Lord. You got a place there, John? Okay. But I rejoiced in the Lord that now at last you have received your, revived your concern for me. Indeed, You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Now that term secret is a word you should underline. And I'll explain why in just a minute. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, where I can do all things through him, and the him is obviously Christ who strengthens me. Now, I want to just make sure that we understand the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing this. He's writing to the Philippians. They have been, I think, uh, from all of his epistles, 
um, one of the closest to him. Uh, he loved them. He cared about them deeply. Um, he says there's nothing negative said about that church in this little epistle. And here he's saying that they're supporting him. At last you have revived your concern for me. Now what he means by that, not only their concern in praying for him, being concerned about his welfare, because remember, he's in prison, but they're supporting him. He mentioned that in chapter 1. And he said, you had lacked the opportunity to do that, but now you're doing it. But I want to remind you, even when you could support me, it was all right. So why does he say that? It's a word of comfort, a word of encouragement to them. But in saying it that way, he reveals actually something profound. And it's at the end of verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Now, the only way, and you know, I made that into a noun here, contentment, is possible is if you have peace with God and are experiencing the peace of God. Now, you understand the difference. Peace with God is the um, barrier that has separated you from a relationship with God. Your sin is taken care of. That's what the cross is all about. Another way, uh, another word that is used in the scriptures, it's in Romans 5 and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is we are reconciled to God. Now that is just another way of putting this uh, concept of peace with God. All right, now, I don't think I need to elaborate on it anymore, but without that, everything else falls. But given that, one of the results of that peace with God, being reconciled to God, and so on, is he begins to transform us. He begins to change us from the inside out. And one of those qualities that we have been discussing the last month is the peace of God, that quality of life, that solidness, stability, tranquility, and all that, that the Holy Spirit produces, but that we also are to be serious about. An attitude of joy, getting along with people, and not worrying but praying. That's Philippians 4, uh, 4 through 9. Okay, now, given all of that, he says, I'm sharing with you something about my life, and it's contentment. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, your understanding of Paul's life after he met Christ on the Damascus Road. <clears throat> Fairly easy life? Um, or was it a life almost of extremes? A life, uh, well, tell me, what do you know about his life? Huh? All right, he was, he was in prison a lot. He's writing the epistle of uh, Philippians from prison in Rome. Physically painful. Yeah. Stories. Do you know any? Do you remember any examples? Uh, he was he was flogged. He was yeah. he was put in Roman stocks. He was um, and he, he even even though we don't know exactly what it was, he he had a thorn in his side, so to speak, which yeah. may have been yeah. physical, may have been otherwise. Yeah. But, um, anything else? Shipwrecked in jail. All right, talks about uh, being shipwrecked. He was in jail again a number of times. He was pretty much completely dependent 
for support from the people yes. to the congregation. Yes. I mean, uh, maybe he worked at, at times, you know, as a tent maker, but mm -hmm. we don't know. But nevertheless, uh, he could have been handed hand out at times. Yeah, I think probably there were times when uh, he, he did not have anything close to abundance in, in physical uh, material things. Um, is there any indication uh, in the text that, that God was kind of hurting, hurting him or, or nurturing him in a different way? I mean, he put him in jail, but maybe that protected him from something else? Or? Oh, well, I think in certain circumstances, yes. But that so isn't always... Yeah, trouble, yeah. Yeah. So we don't get ourselves sure. into trouble if we were just... Well, I think that's true. Uh, uh, and I mean, we could cite some examples, I think, from Paul's life there. In God's superintendence of all the events and affairs of our life, sometimes it's a very protective function. But it's also... Can I go down a bunny trail real quick? Something I feel kind of strongly about. Um... There is, in our culture, and it doesn't, it's not in Africa, it's not in Asia, it's not in Latin America, but it's in North America. Prosperous, cushioned North America is the teaching. Come to Jesus, and you'll be healthy and wealthy. It's called the health and wealth gospel, or the prosperity gospel. Why do you think that doesn't take hold in Africa? Or Asia, or Latin America. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. That's a suffering church. And there, and I, I'm going to try to make sure I don't mention any names because I really don't want to do that. But I'm going to say something that might sound a little strong. But that is a lie that some preachers are teaching and preaching, and they're doing very well with that. And they have a they have a pretty wide following and so on. But I, I read Paul's epistles, and there are 13 of them. I don't see anywhere in his epistles where he teaches that. I don't see anywhere he says, come to Jesus, and you're going to have a really good life, materially speaking. No more sickness, no more problems, no more financial difficulties, no more stress. You see what I'm saying? Paul, are, are you comparing him then to the preachers now? Is that weird? Contrast. Yeah, I'm contrasting their message. Okay. The message he's saying here is I'm content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And then, you know, this whether it's suffering or abundance, I'm content. And, uh, you know, Andrew and all of you that talked, you can cite examples that the examples we have in the New Testament of Paul's life are almost all examples of him suffering. Now, I, you know, I, we don't know all that happened in his life because obviously any account is only going to be selective. But so I, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. But it is, if we are saying to people in, in our presentation of the gospel, come to Jesus. And everything is now going to be really great and cushiony, and that's that's the wrong message to send. The primary message is you need to have peace with God because your sin is a barrier. It is in rebellion against Amen. him, but he's taking care of that through the cross. Take away the guilt. Take away the sin and 
all that's, that's a part of that. That's step one. Then he begins that process of transforming your life from the inside out. And that takes the rest of our lives. But those of you, I mean, I've walked with the Lord since 1972, but those of you who've walked with the Lord for, for a while, you know one thing. This is sometimes as intense as the struggle is, I do not want to go back to my life before I put my faith in Christ. Amen. I know there are a lot of things that you wrestle with, but I don't want to go back to that. And so it's, I, I think that's all I'll say. So. Um, uh, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm so enthusiastic. Question. But, you know, I've thought about that. I thought, well, you know, be content in all things. That sounds like a command. It's it, not it is. an ideal, but that's what we're obligated to do. I said, well, why would he say that? And is that consistent with anything? And then I think of the Tenth Commandment. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt not covet. Mm-hmm. So being con- is that not the opposite? So mm-hmm. if you're not coveting, what are you? You're content. Mm-hmm. What are you on? Mm-hmm. I think last week we talked about a couple of terms that could be considered synonyms for contentment. Being satisfied with where we are. And, and so on, which I want to talk about a little more in just a minute. But there is, a, there is a very, very important message for you and me in this little paragraph, 10 through 14. That message is, it, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question, because I don't want you to answer it. I, mean, I don't want people around the table here to answer it, but are you content with the circumstances that you're in right now? Uh, you know, and content is is a circumstance-related response. Your peace is a a response to the Lord and all he's done. It's something that's energized by the Spirit, which then results to how then do I respond to all the circumstances of my life. And you know this is true. It doesn't matter who you are or where your walk with the Lord is. Life is a roller coaster because we live in a fallen world. And that roller coaster is going to continue until the Lord comes back. So contentment is how do we respond in life to the roller coaster? And contentment is I'm, I'm satisfied because Paul said, now he, he does extremes here. Whatever circumstances I'm in, I'm content. Whether I'm filled or hungry, abundant or suffering, humble means or living in prosperity, Paul says, I've lived in both. I'm content. Now, we need to talk a little more about that. We, I think last week one of the words mentioned was satisfied. You're satisfied or satisfaction or whatever. Um, talk, let's talk a little bit more about that. Contentment. What does it look like? If you were to sit down and write a paragraph, and maybe you couldn't write a whole paragraph, maybe just a sentence, <laughs> but if you were to write something, how would you describe contentment? While you're thinking, let me uh, illustrate. Some of you, I'm the oldest person in the room, sir, so you don't, none of you probably remember this. But many years ago, the pet milk company was advertising their milk. And as, as I remember, it was always in a can. I don't think it was in a bottle. But anyway, whatever it was. And they would show this. And then here is their message. Our milk comes from contented cows. 
And you know, I'm okay. I mean, I remember that. I was I wasn't really old as I remember that message. I mean, it wasn't like five years ago. It seems like it was decades ago. So I don't really remember how long ago it was. But that's always stuck with me because that's a biblical word. No, not you know, contented. Cows isn't a biblical word, but contented. So I mean, what does that mean? Well, one time I was because when I was president, I traveled a great deal, and I was I was with a, a dairyman up in Wisconsin, and I said, I just want to ask you a question. And I told him about this. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I said, is that a true statement? He said, absolutely. If your herd of cows is in a, in a situation where they're constantly being frightened or there's noise, he said, it, effect, it affects both the amount and the quality of the milk. So you want to strive for a place where the cows are going to be. It's quiet. There's going to be not a lot of noise that's going to upset them. They're not going to be in situations where they're going to be afraid because you want contented cows. So I said, you know, that's one of the few examples where the marketing people weren't lying to us. They were really saying contented cows produce better milk. So what does that mean to you? How can we be contented when you're so convicting us? (laughs) (laughs) Go back to his first There was a a competitive dairy company that came out also with the the saying, our cows are not contented, they are always looking to do better. Oh, is that right? (laughs) I didn't know that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, my goodness. They even get competing with one another over the nature of a cow. All right. If you, again, have you thinking? I had you thinking about that pet commercial. So, what is he really saying to us here? So, I'm going to ask it some negatively. Is he saying that we should not have goals for our life? Is he saying we should never have strategies of what we are doing in our work or you know in our ministries or church and so on? Is he saying we shouldn't have, now you have to be real careful about this word, but is he saying we shouldn't have ambition to strive to do better? So what does he mean by content? No grumbling. Okay, two two real good comments here. Matt says no grumblings. Now what does Matt mean by that? What did you mean by that, Matt? When it happens, you can't deal with yourself, give it up again. Okay. So if you do not grumble, do not murmur, all of those kinds of things, that flows from your trust in the Lord. I'm trusting that God has my best interests at heart. And the circumstances that come along, now I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I heard one, years ago I heard a pastor say this, and I loved the thought, and I've, I've repeated it. Nothing happens to you that is not first filtered through the hands of a loving God. And you have to really think through that, because at first it sounds really good, but you have to really think about it. But if God is sovereign and his providence is real, then that's a true statement. So if that is a true statement, then that means, contentment means I'm not going to grumble and murmur and complain. Because God has permitted this for some greater purpose. I think um, Psalm 91 really paints that picture. It doesn't. It, Psalm 91 talks about 
um, the arrows that fly by night and pestilence that stalk in the darkness and how God is uh, like a like a the picture is like a mother hand almost uh, her chicks or yeah. something like that and it's not that those arrows won't come and those pestilence won't stalk at night and that everything won't be falling apart around you but it's where you are and it mm. says it ends up by saying because he knows my name mm. I've saved him yeah that's great because he knows my name one of my wife's favorite verses that's great that is really good thank you uh, who was it said uh, worry not worrying lack, Isn't of lack of anxiety okay lack of anxiety do you agree with that is that a good way to talk about contentment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have to come back to your cow analogy. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something that the secular world likes to talk about, mm. and that's controlling stress. Mm -hmm. So stress is an ager. It's, uh, you know, it, it saps your strength, it saps your health. So... Do you think maybe you have less stress if you're content? I mean, I think the intuitive response to something like that is the question is yes. I mean, and I think the reality is because of how God wired us. I mean, we are wired with when certain things, drones pumped into our blood and, you know, we, we respond. But I think it is, it's managing that. In, in, a, in a way, it's learning through self-discipline. It's managing that. I tell my students that undergraduate education is not only about you know, the information and all the skills and everything that you need to learn, but it's also self-leadership. How am I going to manage my time? How am I going to manage my stress? How am I going to manage interpersonal relationships? The things that almost always do us in. I mean, in terms of, of achieving the goals that we, we think uh, God has for us. So anyway, I think we're always going to have stress, but if, if we believe what our doctrine and theology teaches us, we should be able to check ourselves. Okay, Lord, help me here. I'm, I'm allowing anxiety to develop in my heart and my perspective on things. Help me to, help me to trust you with this and not allow it to become overwhelming to me. And again, I mean, you know, we're in a comfortable room on a lovely summer day in January, but it's when something happens tomorrow where you have to say, okay, do I believe this? <laughs> I mean, it's, we learn this. I do not think that this, this concept, this, this attribute of a contentment comes overnight. But I think the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we see the virtue of contentment. Woody. I, I had a, I, I know of people, actually in my family, that, that when something negative will happen and kind of an unpleasant situation or something, or they have to wait a long time or just something negative, uh, they will often say, I wonder what I'm supposed to learn from this. Mm. Thinking that perhaps it's God's will, and He wants them to learn something. I mean, I don't know if that's uh, fitting with this or not, but I, I think it might be. Well, I think that I don't believe, uh, Woody, that's an inappropriate way to think about things. You know, what 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 is God?
teaching me? What can I personally learn from this? How can I grow through? I mean, there are many, many ways you can ask the question. So I, I don't think that's inappropriate to, to respond that way. Because ultimately, the key is what he says in verse 11, uh, verse 13. It's his thought theology. It's his doctrine. It's what I know about God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My dependence on him is what gets me through this. For me, I've, I've kind of learned and I've actually been, thought about this a lot lately, is that I, a lot of my stress level comes from getting too caught up in outcomes. Mm. You know, in other words, if I just focus, it's, it's okay to have goals. It's, it's great to work hard to achieve them. Mm-hmm. You know, but if I focus just on doing my thing and you know, putting my, you know, and working hard and doing what I can, and then putting the rest of it in God's hands, mm-hmm. and just working on that, making sure that I'm treating people right, mm-hmm. and all the all the rest of it, then then maybe my goal happens. Maybe something else happens. Maybe mm-hmm. God leads me to something else. But if you can just let go of thinking you can control all the outcomes, then for me that helps a lot. That's excellent. That's an excellent comment. Uh, my mentor in Pennsylvania used to say to me that. Uh, because it was after I was ordained, he said, Jim, one of the things you're going to learn is that um, you can't change people. That's God's business. But then he said, what you do is you work hard, you you do all the planning and preparation, whether you're teaching or preaching, etc., but you leave the results to God. Amen. That that was a helpful thought to me, that you leave the results to God. And that's, in a sense, another way of saying what you were saying about outcomes and so on. Now, again, should we have metrics if you know we're in a strategic plan? Should we have metrics? Yeah, but the the value of, of sometimes metrics and measuring outcomes. So I got the wrong goal here. I got to refine the goal or something like that instead of. I mean, we are talking here so conceptually. It's when we have to live this. But the the apostle Paul is really sharing something here that I think is is remarkably helpful for us as men. And this is men, I'm saying specifically men. I mean gender-specific men. There are only women in this room. Because often, we are not very contented. And I mean, I've, I've raised two children, and I, I've, I've thought a number of times, and my wife and I have talked about that, that I did not always model that. I'm a very goal-driven person, and I didn't always model the contentment to my kids. That That, you know... We're trusting the Lord with whatever this is, whatever that circumstance is, and not grumble and complain. We're going to leave the results. I mean, these are all manifestations of contentment. And I like even what Woody said. Instead of saying, "Oh, this is this is really difficult for us," now we're going to we're going to we're going to get through this, which is okay to say it that way. Instead, a number of times Peggy would always remind me, and we would then say to the kids. Let's think of what God's teaching us through this. And certainly, one of the very first things is that I can do all things through him, not through me, through him who gives me the strength to do it. So again, it's another way of saying, as we've been talking all through this book, of a God-centered, not circumstance-centered. A God-controlled, not a circumstance-controlled life. That's all the difference. And it's, it's the goal. And you, you've heard me say this many times. You and I are patient for the process that God is putting us through. Because he is patient with us. 
And it's just, we learn, we grow, we mature, we develop, and we see him transforming us. And I think this is, to me, one of the, one of the most remarkably applicable passages in the book of Philippians, to learn contentment. I think, uh, and being part of that contentment is to recognize when we aren't following God's leading and we get out in front of it a little bit and we've failed and we know it. I mean, we don't have to guess at it. When we fail in whatever thing, small or large, that, that we fail, but to know that God still walks with us. Oh, absolutely. Still loves yeah. us. Yeah. We can get back on the track yeah. And, yeah. and commune with him yeah. and, and just... He's available to us because mm-hmm. he is our strength through mm, exactly. Christ. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's constantly reminding ourselves of these truths. And in groups like this, just reminding ourselves. And I mean, another way of what you said, I think it's so important for us to always keep this focus. Whatever I do, and even if I fail, it doesn't mean God loves me less. He's, it's not what I do is causing him to love me more. You know, okay, do this, and then I'll love you more. That, that's, that's a foreign idea to God. I ask you to underline the word secret in verse, uh, what verse is that? Verse 12, or at least note the word secret. I don't know if I said underline, but note the word secret. That's a very important word. Uh, it's the only time it's used in the, in the New Testament. So if it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, that's kind of important. And it was used outside of the New Testament. It was used of the mystery religions. It was used of the cults of the ancient world. They've got a secret that nobody else knows. And when you find that secret, you'll be part of that elite spiritual group. Paul's saying, that's not, that's not the right way to look at it. The secret that I've learned, Paul says, is the secret of contentment. Whether I'm filled or hungry, abundance or suffering, I'm content because I can do all that he's asking me to do because he strengthens me to do it. That's the secret he learned. The content of the secret is verse 13. This isn't some mystery religion that only an elite few will ever find and be in heaven or be in nirvana or whatever they were teaching. This is for everybody. This is for everyone who names the name of Christ. The secret is you can do all things through him who strengthens you. That's the secret. I think the hardest part for me is taking what we're learning here away and then being a husband and a dad. And my son, not that he wants to do anything evil, but say he wants to Well, and Matt, he's going to want to do things the evil sometimes. That's part of growing up. They're going to be tempted to do those things. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm pretty lucky right now. Good. Yeah, good. I'm sure he's going there. And so the hard part for me is to have the the strength that God has. Hmm. God does stuff we don't even want. I mean, we're like, well, if you really love us, can you give us a little? You know, he doesn't do that. It's like, this is the way it is. And, uh, you know, for a dad to be like that, I think that's the hardest challenge for me as a dad is, 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 is to, I know what God does and I know it's the right thing to do. But sometimes it's 
it's kind of easier just to kind of bend a little bit, you know, and not. How do you how do you how do you balance that? Well, you've had two. Such an easy <laughs> question to <laughs> ask her. Yeah, I. Yeah. It's from the parenting side. Is okay. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be just with them. But you can't let them just do it. Well, Matt, I mean, that's the question you're asking. There's one of those profound, deep questions that people write whole books about. So, uh, I mean, I, well, but it's, it, like, but, in our life. I mean, God just doesn't talk to us um, through words. I mean, we can kind of feel it. And he wrote it in this word. I mean, he wrote it down in the book. 5,000 years ago, he knew we were going to screw up. He wrote it down what we were going to do, and it's already in the book. Mm-hmm. But, but, well, my son's looking at me like, you know, that's how you do that. <laughs> you know, why can't I do that? You know. Well, I again, and there's there's no silver bullet to this, but I think it's certainly based on certain very important, uh, like um, assumptions that we have about God and what He's doing, and the assumptions that we should then have in our relationship with our children. One thing we know for certain is that God always loves us, and it's not conditioned on what we do. He doesn't love us more or less. That is an important message to send to our kids, that our love for them is not conditional. I think, secondly, it's extremely important that our children understand, one, that we're not perfect, but understand that our relationship with God is really, really important. It's the most important thing in our life. And they don't only hear us say that, they see us live that. I mean, those, those two things really go together because you know as well as I do. Um, if we say something to our kids and then we don't do it, they're gonna, they'll never get that message. And they'll just say, well, mom, dad, mom doesn't really mean that. Dad doesn't really mean that because they don't do it. So, I mean, it's that, it's that consistency of what we model before our kids. And then as a result of that, I mean, if those two things, we are, we're in, in, in doing all that God's asking us to do because he's strengthening me to do it. Verse 13. And I think the other thing is that we will then help them to create. And, and I think as they get older, we can get them involved in that process. What are the reasonable boundaries of your life in our family? There are certain, there are certain givens. The givens in our household were on a piece of paper with two magnets on the refrigerator. These are the givens. This is never permissible in our home. It's just given. Where do they come from? For the most part, they come from God's word. These are just the givens of our house. And then we called them the standards. Then I think the, the, the fourth thing is, and I, I really had to learn this it, it, with my son more than with my daughter, but to be able to say yes to them as many times as you can. And I'm not talking about the standards, the things that are on the magnet. I'm talking about the things they're going to ask. Well, Dad, can I do this? Can I try this? Can I go... Now, again, I'm, I'm just talking very abstractly here. And I think that relationship that we would develop with our kids based on those other things, they then will see that when Dad says no to something, there's a reason why he's saying no. I may not like that reason. I may really get angry with him, but at least I know Dad's not arbitrary. Dad's not just impulsive. I don't want you to do this because I don't want you to do it. Don't ask me why. That might work with a five-year-old, but it's a 15, 16-year-old. That's probably not going to be always the best way to do it. 
It's only I don't know. I, you're asking something that has so many applications to it, but um, those, those, there's some of the important assumptions that uh, we made and developed uh, in our home as we worked with our kids. And the test of it really does come more when they get into the adolescent years. When you went through the standards, did you do that as a family? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we didn't. This wasn't a democracy. Okay, we're going to vote on this standard. We're going to vote this standard down. We didn't do that, but we said we want you to understand why these are on the refrigerator and they're non-negotiable. You know, I mean, a couple of them were silly things at first, but you must respect your brother's room. Do not go into his room without permission. Now, the only reason we, we put that down there eventually is because they would do that. It would create a massive, you know. You know it's a, but Joanna even put a piece of tape across the, the, the floor, and Jonathan was not allowed to go in. So, anyway. What about when were you allowed to go in there? For the most, I mean, I, I know there were times that we did, but I mean, for the most part, as they got older, we did ask permission. I'd like to go into your room, is all right? Mom would say, I can remember Peggy saying this, Mom's going in your room to hang up your, your stuff, Joanna, okay? Just telling her. That's what, Mom's going in your room. She would do that. She would say, Joanna, I'm going in your room to hang up some stuff, okay? I don't, I can't, I wish I could say every single time we did that. But for the most part, as they got older, we tried to honor that. All right, now. And, and I, I, sorry, I just this is good. Quick, this is application. I just stuff. had a quick question. But no about, more questions like Matt, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I've, I've heard that the literal translation, like in the Greek, is I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did you say that's accurate in, in how he means this? No. no, I don't think it's, it, the word is not hupomene. The, okay. the Greek word hupomene is usually translated endure or persevere. It's an action word. I, I can obediently do, and that's, that's maybe what's missing in, mm. I mean, it's not do all things. I just choose to do whatever I want. That's, mm. not, that's not the intent of this. Sure. It's I can, in effect, I can obediently do. In other words, I'm, I'm doing undoing what the Lord wants me to do. And you see, the assumption of all of this is this characterizes you. And so, I mean, you're seeking in your walk with the Lord. So it isn't I can do all things, meaning I can do all sinful things, all rebellious things. That's obviously not what he means. But I would, I honestly, Andrew, I don't believe that's a good way to translate that. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's tough because you would think you wouldn't use everything or all things you would I think I think of a certain radio talk show host that says all assigned tasks because we are are charged. My philosophy, I guess, hopefully it's not just my own, is to is part of the reason why we pray for guidance because we want to be sure that we're doing what God wants us yeah. to do. Yeah. So you know. You should say all assigned tasks, or and I'm wondering too if the word I can do all. And this is King James. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Strengthens me. Like, uh, mm -hmm. So, in, in, to me, that which strengthens me is a qualifier. It's not everything. It's all things which strengthens me. 
and, and I don't, so I'm asking, does that, you know, is that qualifier used to imply the things that God wants me to do will be the ones that he strengthens me through? That is a really is a great question uh, because you're getting to the syntax of the verse. The, I mean, you really are, the grammar of the verse. Does, is, strengthens me, that is that a, a demonstrative clause or is that a relative clause? Now, I know I'm, I'm real technical here, but is it flowing off of, I can do all things which strengthen me through him, or can I do all things through him who strengthens me? The which is neuter, it's coming off of strengthens. The who is the relative pronoun coming off of him. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I think ESV, I'm pretty sure NIV, all connected to him. The KJV doesn't. Remember, that was translated in 1611. So it's, you know, every now and then it's good to update some of their syntactical decisions. But I think the right way to understand that is the who strengthens me is a relative clause coming of G- off Jesus. He strengthened me. Now, granted, as we go through circumstances, those circumstances strengthen us. But he seems to be saying, and even if that's true, it is the Lord accomplishing his purposes through those circumstances. So he, in effect, is really the one who's strengthening me. I, I know we were in a real technical discussion, and I don't know if, if you got lost and apologize if you did. But he was asking a really good question there. But I think that the message is it is Jesus who strengthens us to do what he's asking us to do. To do his will. To do his will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. What, and to do his will is a 24-7, all-inclusive thing. Right. It's not just you know going and preaching a message somewhere. So. All right, now, unless you want to do anything more with this, I'd like to leave this with all these connections established. The next part of the, of the, the book, I, I think we're just going to skip that. All he does there is he just talks about their giving to him. He talks about the church in Thessalonica and Macedonia and all that. I want to end, but I think Woody has a question. Can we talk about 17? That's the one that I had some questions about. I, okay. It says credited. It says what? Credited Mm -hmm. to an account, Mm -hmm. which almost suggests that if you don't have guidance when you're going through the Bible, that you might think that you might get to heaven through works by building up an account of all the good things that you've done and get credit for them. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that's not the way you explain it. Yeah, and no, I, I think that would be contrary to just so many other parts of the scriptures. Well, what is this he, about the account? Okay, um, not that I seek the gift itself, the monetary gift. They are supporting him. They're involved <laughs> with him, just like the church in Macedonia and Thessalonica and all that stuff. Uh, all those other churches. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Woody, I want you to think of. I want you to think about it uh, from this perspective. Um, we know that uh, thinking like Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace through faith you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember all that in that wonderful passage. 
So that automatically helps us to understand this really doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Verse 17 is not talking about salvation. So what's it talking about? It's talking about how the Lord is looking at, in this, the very specific context of this, is a group of people in Philippi giving financial support to his ministry, Paul's ministry. One of the things Jesus says in the Gospels when he talks about this is as you are behind a ministry, and he was talking about an apostle, but as you're behind a ministry and you support, you pray for them and you financially support, you will share in the blessings of that ministry. And so that's what he's talking about. It's not that God's up in heaven keeping an Excel spreadsheet. Okay, I've got to type that in real quick. I mean, in God's, God's omniscient in a way. He, he, he remembers all that. But it's your being a faithful steward of what he is asking you to do with your resources, whether it's prayer or your financial resources or whatever. But then the, the guarantee is you will share in the blessings. It's like bringing the uh, crops into the storehouse. Yeah, you will share in the blessings of that. You know, um, <laughs> let me just rattle off a whole bunch of possibilities. There are going to be a lot of people in heaven because you gave. There's a whole group of, I'm just, I'm making all these examples, there's a whole group of men that are going to grow more deeply in their relationship with Jesus because you have been involved. Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody has an Excel spreadsheet with, he did this and he did this and he did this, and therefore he, no, but God does. And so you then share in all of the blessings. And that's part, I think that's all, it's so complicated to think through the details of this, but it's all that's involved when we get to heaven and Jesus says, well done. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you for the foundation of the world. And I think that's what he's saying to the Philippians. I, you know, I'm not seeking this, but the thing that really excites me is if you get involved in this, you're going to share in the blessings of this ministry, the, the profit which increases to your account. I was using merchant's terms there from the first century, but that has to be understood. And, I mean, it probably spills over into the idea of rewards, which is such a difficult topic to talk about in many ways. But so does that kind of answer your question? It sure does. I mean, I, I, used to, you know, I used to say that to people when, you know, when I was raising money and so on. Not, it's because it's the biblical concept. Whenever, whatever you share, and I think everybody should have a strategy for their giving anyway. You have to think about you know, dividing up your finite resources to benefit the kingdom and lots of things you can think about. But whatever God does through that, you are making it possible for eternally significant things to be done. And there's only one person in the universe who knows all that. The Lord. He knows all the connections and how everything fits together. But that's all Paul is saying to them. What really excites me is how what you are doing is having this eternal impact on what's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean world in the first century. That's a, that's a neat way to think about it. Okay? Now, before we finish Philippians, <laughs> I am going to say a word about 1 Thessalonians, too, but let me, I want to draw your attention to verse 22. It's really an amazing verse. It's almost an astonishing verse. He's ending the letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren of you greet me. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
Where's Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? Prison. He's in a prison in Rome. And he's, when he says all the saints greet you, what he means is the saints in Rome, the people he's connected with there. And then he didn't have to add this, but he added, especially those of Caesar's household. Who's a Caesar this time? It's Nero. So that means in the household of Caesar. Now that that's so broad. We, he doesn't name names. We don't know any idea. Of, but that's just an amazing thought. Whether it was directly because of Paul's ministry or Paul just knew them because of the house churches. The, the Romans 16 names five house churches that were in Rome. So, and, and he names names there. And some of those names, we can't identify who they are. I mean, we know from extra-biblical literature who they are. But here he just makes it general. But that's an amazing, that's an amazing statement. All he's saying, this would have been encouraging to the Philippians. The gospel is penetrating the center of power in the Mediterranean world and transforming lives. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? That's just, that's, that would have been encouraging to them. And he may have said that because as a source of encouragement, because they have been behind his ministry, both in praying for it and in contributing to it. I just, I think that's one of those little tiny tidbits that you can do a lot with that thought. Even in Caesar's household, there are believers. There were 9,000 in the Praetorium Guard. Yeah. And, he right. was, and they were chained to him. And yeah, he, yeah. So he had a captive audience. Oh, yeah. He was a captive. Absolutely. They were also yeah. in his... Yeah. Can you imagine being, because their shift was a six-hour shift. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for six hours? What do you think he talked about? The upcoming Super Bowl, whether the footballs are deflated or not? Maybe, but I'm pretty sure he talked to them about Jesus. Whether those axe blades are sharp or not. Yeah. All right. We don't get to say this very often in this Bible study. But we're done with the book of Philippians. I mean, to say we're done with anything in this class is always rather, but it's good. (laughs) Father, we're thankful for our uh, time to study the book of Philippians, which I think was an enriching study. We've been in that for quite a few months. So thank you for that privilege, and may uh, it really deeply, deeply sink into the hearts of the men as you continue your work of transforming them. Thank you for the the good discussions, the good uh, relationship that's developing among the men as they allow iron to sharpen iron as we think about and apply the Word of God to our lives. We look forward with uh, hopefully some anticipation to the study of the Thessalonian letters. We trust that this will be a blessing in our hearts as well as in our lives as we do what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to do. Think of how the return of Jesus, his second coming, and all the events surrounding that should affect how we live today. And that's what he's really trying to teach them. So that's important, and we want to learn from it and study it together, and we look forward to that. So give us a good rest of this day. And uh, Dear Lord, in everything we do, we want to represent you, so help us to represent you well. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.